Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Could the Bible be the key to understanding the paranormal? What are transmigrational phenomena and supergeometry? Can there really ever be a scientific definition of the paranormal? Well, hello there, and welcome to the 309th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those mind-bending questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. But before we welcome our guest, it's time for a good old weekly paranormal contest. So last week, we began uh, 2012 with the question, what is the name of the actual book in which the Mayans make their prediction about 2012? Well, Matt Harris from Boston was our winner, and his correct answer was the books of the Chilam Balam, which I believe I'm pronouncing correctly, literally meaning Jaguar Priest slash Predictor. Hmm. Nice. All right, so this week's question is, in which town in New England does a ghostly leg appear on the gravestone of this town's founder? And if you get that right, win a copy of Behind the Cosmic Veil by tonight's guest. Thomas P. Fusco is an independent researcher who has devoted nearly three decades to investigating the relationship between mind, physics, spirituality, parapsychology, scientific anomalies, and paranormal phenomena with the goal of, quote, uncovering the unifying cosmological framework that has eluded mankind for generations, unquote. He has appeared on numerous radio programs and is the author of Behind the Cosmic Veil, a new vision of, of reality merging science, the spiritual, and the supernatural, a uh, book Ben just mentioned. His website is www.cosmicveil, that's cosmicveil.com. So Tom Fusco, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Uh, how you doing, guys? Okay, no, yeah, not, and I was like, you turn up just a bit of the audio, he'll be just there nice and clear. Okay, so Ben, take it away. All right, Tom, what is your new vision of reality, and how is it different from the old vision? 25 words or less, please. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, my. <laughs> well, uh, this new vision of reality, of course, seeks to answer uh, the causes behind many anomalous phenomena that we observe in our universe today. Of course, you know I've spent a lot of the... Uh, time working on the body of anomalous data that we call paranormal phenomena, but uh, this model of the universe also addresses uh, certain key problems that uh, the scientific community are still facing in trying to decipher the way our universe is put together. Okay. So what are those key problems? Well, of course, with uh, paranormal phenomena, uh, and uh, let's say some of the mysteries uh, or the quandaries of quantum physics, uh, what we have uh, is that we're observing what science would call non-local causality or non-locality. Gotcha, yeah. That we have many observations where we see a physical effect which physically interacts with its surroundings, but we have no direct physical cause connected to it. Uh, one author, which I like very much how he put it, he said, it's like getting a black eye in Miami from a punch that's thrown in Cleveland. And so these are the kind of mysteries uh, that we're looking at. The paranormal, of course, uh, pretty much everything in that uh, qualifies under there. Mm. But also things like quantum entanglement, 
the two-slit experiment in physics, uh, the duality of light, and uh, a number of other aspects of physical uh, anomalies for which we have no explanation. Yeah, the Elaine aspect experiment. Uh, it's funny, I can see where we differ already in, in, in uh, some of our work. However, well, uh, you know, you're the guest, so Ben, continue, please. Okay, so what convinced you that the Bible has some kind of role in this? Well, what I did was this. Uh, my understanding, uh, according to my understanding, that there is a body of information that exists outside of space-time. This is not a new idea in and of itself. Uh, it's gone by many names over over the centuries. Um uh, but the Bible itself has a definition of that, too. Uh, it, it's called the wisdom of God, and in the New Testament, it's called the word of God. Uh, more recent definitions of it, uh, David Bohm, uh, one of the most prominent physicists of the 20th century, called it implicate order, a collection of information outside of space-time from which explicate order uh, arose which is our dimensional space-time that we uh, experience uh, in a normal way. And so one of the aspects of that is that the human mind apparently has the ability to access that body of information. One of the evidences being is that we sometimes get inspirations that turn out to be hard reality uh, without any of the scientific uh, uh, testing process that leads to those conclusions. So assuming that the Bible is an inspirational work and says very specific things about the way the universe is put together, what I did was take a look at the particular um, cosmology that's described in there and see if it gives us any inspirational facts. Okay, and you're talking essentially about, about this this non non locality uh, this this body of information that's non local. Is that analogous to the collective unconscious that Jung would talk about? Well, I'm not it's sure. Same sort of idea. What about the collective unconscious? We we run into problems, as you know, in in this field and all the related a fields. A lot of problems that. in this field. Yeah. We've been forced almost to every individual almost comes up with their own set of terminologies because we really don't have a common terminology base so i'm not sure what the collective unconsciousness what you mean by that well it's a common in in, in psychology the the works of carl jung who was a student of freud's and decided freud was full of baloney at least partially uh like you know and <laughs> as many of us believe mm. and uh he said that there is a sort of a non-local body of of information much as you describe. And that's what oh, I'm referring like to. Sounds like one of the alternative names for what I was talking. Yeah, about. exactly. That, that, that mm -hmm. was, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So I'm sorry, Ben. You had another one more question. I guess. Uh, where was I? Uh, oh yeah. Are you working with other researchers? Is there any kind of peer review here? Well, one of the things that we're uh, working on right now is uh, testable predictions. And of course, one of the things that's different about my particular theory when it uh, from other theories that incorporate spiritual elements in it, is that my theory actually makes testable predictions about observations that we will see in the universe. So one of the testicle, uh, the, the, the testable predictions that we're going to find is that we're going to find uh, gravitational fluctuations in the immediate vicinity of paranormal events. And I'm working with Mark Hayes of the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association, 
to begin to develop technology that will make these uh, tests. Okay. Well, let's back up a little bit, Tom. Okay, 1974, I'm investigating a case in Bridgeport, Connecticut, with Ed Lorraine Warren and a priest named Father Bill Charbonneau. Okay. I, uh, this is the Bridgeport poltergeist thing. Maybe you've heard of it. It's pretty pretty well known. Mm-hmm. I, get, I get hit in the leg by a flying television set, and I almost have to go to the hospital. Um, the, the, the thing did not fall off a shelf. It was a floor model television. The thing went over and with such force, I can't believe the thing was, it wasn't in smithereens. Uh, or I, I'm standing there the, two days before that w- watching uh, w- in the presence of police and fire uh, fire officials uh, a refrigerator pick itself up float around the kitchen what was what caused that in your paradigm well these are very good examples uh, guys because you know that what we're looking at uh, in these kind of events is that we see no structures uh, physical structures that actually can generate or direct that kind of physical force and so of course uh, in in my model, uh, there is a way to manipulate the physical from the pre-physical or the super-physical. In other words, the super-physical is primary reality, and the physical that we experience is the after-effect of reality. So, for example, in, in my model, it shows that the gravitational lensing, the bending of space that surrounds all objects, can be manipulated super-physically. Okay, and in, in, in Einstein's sense of curved space and time. Yes, that's a very important point. Okay. Einstein's I've model into of that. unified field. <laughs> I've run into that right between my eyes, too. Wait, didn't they just disprove that, or am I thinking of something no, else? No, no, th- there's, there's some uh, some debate now about whether things can travel faster than light. Ah, right. Yeah. Okay, right. That, that, yeah, that's what I get mixed up with. It's remarkable how many times and in how many unexpected areas where physics continues to verify Einstein's model. All right, so I get attacked by a television set, and and what what can you be more specific about how that works in your paradigm? Well, yeah, let's. Uh, let's you're talking, let's, you're talking about di- the distant effects, distant physical effects. I think is what you're talking about. Well, here's what here's a, here's a model I commonly use. If you can imagine this, imagine a bowl of water. And the water is filled at the top, and the water represents these super-physical elements that I talk of, form and substance, information and pre-physical waves. And then let's stretch a, uh, um, a sheet of rubber across the top of it. And imagine that the rubber is filled with millions of little holes that is able to allow water to seep through it very easily, but you can't see those holes. And when we look at this uh, uh, this fabric from uh, above, we see like a blank plane. Uh, it's like the empty fabric of space with no matter in it. Now, if you stuck your finger in it, suddenly the water would rush in from underneath, and we would actually see a materialization within the depression of space-time that's being caused by your finger. Now, imagine taking that finger and sliding it across, and the manifestation of water would follow it. And so we would have movement of physical matter without needing the physical energy from the physical side that would normally be necessary to do it. It would be almost like scrolling through your tiles on your, your uh, tablet, PC. All right. So who hit me with the TV set? Was it a conscious entity or was it just uh, the Hutchison effect or something? 
Well, as you know from my work, what I try to do is make a distinction. Uh, as, as I look at paranormal events as a crime scene, and I try mm-hmm. to make a distinction between the criminologist and the forensic examiner. Mm-hmm. The criminologist is the one that can answer those kinds of questions. What entity was involved? What intelligence was involved? And clearly these kinds of things indicate intelligence. Uh, I'm on the forensic side. I want to study and explain to people what the actual physics of the crime scene is. So when a, 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 um, a person comes to me and says, is it possible that this could have been an entity of this and that? I can show them the forensics and say, according to the forensics, yes, that theory is viable. Okay, Tom, let, let's let's take it from the viewpoint of a crime scene. Now, Ben, you've studied forensics. Maybe you have a comment on here. Basic forensics. Yeah. Really uh, when you look at a crime scene, you look at the whole context of the case, as, as we try to do in paranormal research. And we, I started out in the early 70s with... Um, Ghost research, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you look at the, the entire context of the case, and then naturally one goes in and doesn't just look, look at isolated phenomena. You look at okay, who were the people involved in the case? What what could the motives have been? Uh, what sort of person could have uh, perpetrated this crime? Uh, what is the evidence? What does it mean? How does it fit together? It's not a matter of just separate pieces. It's a matter of putting it together, right? as as you know. So. Uh, that, that looking at this case we've been discussing, that uh, this poltergeist case, uh, I also um, uh, experienced a number of, of entities that we could see coming down the hallway of this house, uh, attacking me physically. I had a physical altercation with one of them. It got around me and threw the child across the room. The child, uh, standard parapsychology would say, was the agent, but I don't buy any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, uh, I, I, they didn't seem to be very, the, the, the physical cause didn't seem to be very far away from us at the time. And um, my, my interpretation of the quantum physics of that situation is somewhat different, perhaps, from your own. Um, how, how do you, what say you? Well, uh, just to, to, to mention real briefly about the criminologist forensist, the forensist truly is involved in the physics of the case. The criminologist is the one that takes that information and tries to piece it together with who done it. Okay. Um, but in what you're talking about with that type of experience, the key, the key element of that that I want to point out is that these entities, what you saw, when you saw these things, that's a physical effect. In other words, you can't see that thing unless it's interacting with the environment and photons are reflecting off of it. That's right. a real physical effect. It can't touch you unless it's well, creating it sure a real physical cause. And so you experienced all those things. The only exception is is that these are paranormal because there was no physical being. In other words, there's no body that you could drag into a lab like a Bigfoot. You have all these physical effects, and you have absolutely no physical cause. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, just now, now I, I have sat in classrooms for decades, like everybody else. Although I was studying theology, philosophy, and psychology, mm-hmm. and um, my applying that to the, the paranormal and what I've learned about physics since then has been simply from being in the trenches experiencing this stuff i you know i, I have no advanced degree in, in physics sure so sure. um th- this this is how i have interpreted it over the last you know 40 years and this is how it seems to have have worked 
And again, I could be wrong. Ben and I are the first ones to admit that we could be wrong. Uh, we, we get kind of frustrated, as I'm sure you do, with the what we refer to as the feral ghost hunters or the garden variety investigators who really don't have any qualifications whatsoever and go in and everybody accepts them as experts. That's really frustrating to me. Yeah, the way. and uh, with that and the way that they look at those, uh, uh, the type of events that, that they're observing, you and I, I think, are in very strong agreement about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but uh, I think, I don't know, the physical effects that I have seen seem to be very imminent and present I, I understand what you're saying, and you you could very well be right. Uh, are you familiar with the Hutchison effect? As familiar as one can be with such a thing. Well, I have to admit, I've come across it in my studies, but it doesn't come to, to memory right off the top of my head. Well, when funny, it was the first thing I thought of, because it was only just being worked on in the early 70s, and it wasn't well known. I thought of it when I saw that refrigerator pick itself up, and the picture's flying off the wall. And people to this day will, will often say to me, well, the the, uh, the ghost did this, or the ghost moved this chair. I said, well, it might not be the quote-unquote ghost at all. It might be the effect of the energies that allowed the thing to manifest, as, as we believe, through the membranes of parallel worlds. We believe all this is, is sort of the uh, MWI of quantum mechanics, the multiple worlds interpretation. That, that's what we see. And again, it could be wrong. How do you see, why did we see these entities as we did? Sort of gauzy, yellowish structures. Because if you're looking out, the, the analogy I always use, if you're looking out your living room window through a curtain, your neighbor comes over, you're not going to see your neighbor. You're going to see like kind of a gauzy structure kind of guy walking by your window. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's, that's the, uh, the, the sort of thing that, that I think of it as being. And that has played out. But of course, you know, the bell curve and quantum mechanics thing, things tend to, to resemble what you believe they are. So maybe we're wrong. But I don't know. But but your your theory is intriguing, so let's talk more about it. Uh, what exactly... I'm still trying to get my, my, my mind around um, how you would interpret, say, a classic ghost. You know, the lady who comes down the stairs, walks her through the door without opening it every other Wednesday at 8 o'clock, that, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Well, as far as the apparition itself, uh, what we're obviously looking at is an organized collection of, of information that is materializing in our space-time. Uh, it is materializing, we know that because it actually interacts with its environment. If it didn't reflect photons from its surface, we wouldn't be able to see it. Uh, as far as its structure and shape, we're talking about a body of information which is sufficiently coherent to reproduce all the details in geometric fidelity of the original woman who may have been walking there maybe centuries ago, and that this information as it materializes is recognizable. And so the idea here is that that information is stored superphysically outside of space-time, where time and space has very little effect on it, and that there is a way to materialize that information so that we can see it visibly and actually interact with it. Now, as far as the evidences for both uh, uh, information and influential force being applied on our universe from outside of it, as far as the information, and the perfect example is quantum entanglement. Okay. Could you explain a bit about that? Absolutely. This is where we have uh, a photon that, through repeated attempts, 
uh, scientists are able on occasion to split these in two. The resulting pair is each kind of a, uh, they each pair, uh, individual of the pair acts as a full pho- a photon, but on a lower energy level, and they take on a polarity. So particle A has an upspin, particle B has a downspin. Then they split these pairs apart and have each individual flying away from each other at the speed of light since they're photons. Mm-hmm. Then they pass particle A through a polarizing field that reverses its spin. Particle B will automatically respond by reversing its own spin, thereby uh, reestablishing the balance within the correlated pair. And this can happen even if these particles are separated by 500,000 light years. That's right, yeah. Which makes it absolutely impossible that that information could be being transmitted from particle A to particle B that in a physical way. So it it's, it's outside, the, yeah, the known realm of space-time when it comes to these two particles or probably anything else for that matter. Oh, no, yeah, I and to me, so yeah, like yeah. with David Bohm's implicate order, it's like a, a network. It's, it's a matrix of information. In his, in his picture, it propagates holographically, and so these particles are actually connected, and the information is transferred from one to the other, but outside of space-time. Now, as far as forces being applied from outside of space-time, Theodore Calusa, who worked with Einstein on his mathematics for his unified field theory, uh, finally concluded that gravity was a non-local phenomenon. In other words, gravitational effect was being caused by some sort of a source outside of space-time. So we look out into space today, and we see all this gravitational lensing with no adjacent physical matter. Now, the atheistic materialistic physicists have made up this imaginary substance called dark matter Mm -hmm. to explain that there's something there that we can't see. But it's not universally accepted. There is a faction in physics that says, yes, this bending of space is extra physical. And therefore, that bending of space is a real force that can contribute to explaining some of the things that you guys experienced in this house that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let me just uh, step back a minute and define a term for people who are listening who may not know what it is. The term non-local. Uh, frequently crops up in physics. And uh, to give you an example of it, there is a certain belief among physicists that, that human memory, our, all our memories, are non-local. They're not inside of us. They're shared uh, out, uh, outside of us in, in, a, in a sort of a, a, a collection of knowledge and facts and memory uh, and, and imagination, if you will, uh, mo- much like uh, I would suggest that Tom was describing earlier in the show. So uh, just uh, the term non-local is uh, very important, I think. So. Absolutely. And that quantum entanglement, that function that I talked about with the two divided photons, what physicists call a photon teleport, is the evidence of that coherent, meaningful, significant body of information that actually transfers from one particle to the other, but has no physical avenue within space-time to travel. One of the arguments of quantum physicists is that they'll say, okay, well, they'll agree with, with us and say, okay, well, all this is true, but on the microscopic level or the subatomic level, all these particles do these things. They defy space-time. They cause... Uh, Things before the uh, the effects take place before the or I should say before the things that cause them all this business time, fantasy takes over, but they might argue that 
this does not translate to the macroscopic level, the level of people and houses and refrigerators and cops and, and grasshoppers and all trees and all this business. Uh, how would you respond to that, to that criticism? Well, what we're getting into now is what I call kind of the subtle uh, uh, cultural dogma uh, that dominates physics today. Mm-hmm. And part of that dogma is from the quantist perspective. And the quantist perspective says that none of these things are determinable, that everything is, is random, and uh, that the problem that they have bringing it up to the macro world has to do with the speed of light and gravity. But uh, anyway, that is the current view. However, it wasn't always held that way. Einstein argued against that. Einstein said that the quantists were wrong. He said that I don't, uh, quantum physics is impressive, but I don't believe God rolls dice. Yeah, that's so, pretty much what he said, yeah. Because yeah, so it was too crazy to quantist, for him, too. So the, according to the quantist, it's impossible to tell what the weather in Miami at 2 p.m. is going to be seven days from now. And Einstein held the opposite view. He said that given enough information, we can absolutely determine what the weather is going to be like in Miami seven days from now at 2 p.m. So I don't accept... You know, the premise that you were explaining about the Qantas view, I don't accept their view. I mm-hmm. think they're wrong. Okay. And I think they have motivations for doing this other than just pure science. Well, that, that's the problem. I, I want to give Ben a chance here. I just want to mention that what, one of the things we, we do on this show, at least I do, is we, uh, we're always questioning Western epistemology, how we know what we think we know. And, and our, our ultimate conclusion is we don't know anything, you know. Everything you know is wrong is the motto of this show. Mm-hmm. You may have seen it on the website. Uh, so, so we just we have a question about uh, well, Ben's favorite philosopher, Descartes, uh, for example. You know, <laughs> je pense donc je suis. I, I, we, he said essentially that I think, therefore I am. Four hundred years, you ruined philosophy. Well, that's it. But the fact is that even that, a lot of people, the professor won't tell you that on his deathbed, he essentially, or toward the end of his life, he essentially, re, you know, recanted on that and said, even that's not good enough. We don't know anything. Thomas Aquinas, all these great thinkers, essentially realized that in the end, it all ends in silence. Silence before God, you know, and, and that's essentially what, what happened. So, um, the, the, whether it be the arrogance or the uh, presumption of science is a problem when it comes to honesty in science, and I know you, you agree from what you've said. Absolutely, and we have to look at the motivation. Uh, for example, if we take a look at the scientific field and we understand what their motives are, uh, science does not get performed without funding. Funding does not get provided without organizations providing that funding. And organizations don't provide that funding unless they're sold correctly. That's right. And so this is part of the image. And unfortunately, it it contributes to science presenting to the general public certain ideas that are facts, as facts, when in fact they're not. My wife just found me a link and said, oh, uh, astrophysicists have just mapped dark matter. And I said, baloney. (laughs) What they've mapped is all the areas where we see gravity with no adjacent mass. We yeah. basically mapped, uh, created a map of our own ignorance, and one could easily say what they mapped was the physical manifestation of the hand of God. All right. Well, you tell them, Tom. We're going to take a commercial break here for just a moment, and we'll be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and ONWorldwide.com in New England's beautiful but oddly snowless Blackstone River Valley. 
Stay with us. Hey, everybody. Lou Mandeville here, your Owen 1240 Sports Director. If you like the best in local sports, as well as what the big boys do each and every night, then tune in to the Morning Fun Show with Mike Sheridan for all your sports action on your station for sports. That's ON 1240. Okay, and we are back, but I have to give you a little bit of word on Amazon Kindle Fire, this new device that was released in November and was a really great success for sales over the gift-giving season. And, of course, you can get all sorts of things on this little device. It's about $199, and you can get it at Staples and uh, other other places as well. And Amazon.com sells it, of course, online. And you can get over a million books, newspapers, and magazines, including four books of mine, uh, faces at the window, footsteps in the attic, turning home, God, ghosts, and human destiny, and the uh, from the historical point of view, Rhode Island: A Genial History, written with dear old Glenn Laxton, formerly of Channel 12 in Providence, and it's uh, it's a great great investment, great gift for any any season, and we urge you to check it out. Amazon Kindle and the Amazon Kindle Fire, the newest version of the Kindle device, Kindle device itself now down to about seventy nine dollars. And we always ask our guests this: uh, Tom, is your book available on Amazon Kindle? Uh, not yet. It's only in print form only at this time. Okay. Well, well, we'll keep working on it, and we'll see if we can't get you into the commercial next time. Okay. There you so go. thank you. Okay. So Amazon Kindle, folks, check it out. Staples and Amazon dot com. Okay. Well, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON twelve forty AM, and we are dealing uh, with a wonderful conversation here with Tom Fusco, uh, author and a great thinker and a person who is a uh, Really, uh, kind of making us think a little bit about uh, our own points of view on the paranormal. Uh, ben and I being voices crying in the wilderness, we sometimes feel for sanity and mm-hmm. a, a, a respectable and human, a, a sort of a humble approach to the mysteries that we see around us, uh, rather than um, some of the other things you see on TV. Anyway, Tom, let's uh, let's get back. Ben, did you have any questions before we uh, I, I continue here? Because no, I'm good. Okay. Cause hey, I did have a comment. If you, if yeah, you would. please. Uh, I, according to my uh, understanding of the universe, one of the things that I interpret often uh, with philosophy, uh, as you were saying, many philosophers have said, well, we absolutely know nothing, is that it's a very egocentrical point of view. It's based on a premise that somehow inside of our skin lies a different reality than outside of our skin, that somehow what's inside of us doesn't follow the laws of physics. I've got a cup of coffee sitting on my table right now. The very fact that I can see it and recognize it and reach my hand out and touch it physically and pick it up and not shoot my hand out three feet to the left where it isn't shows that we can absolutely know certain things for sure. Well, the question is, are your five physical senses accurate? Can they be trusted? Well, like any other physical thing, they're going to vary from individual to individual. And the interpretation of what's received by those uh, senses is going to be colored by the knowledge that's in the mind. When the ancients looked up in the sky and saw all the stars, they saw a glass firmament with holes in it, and that's how interpreted it. If you suddenly interjected in their mind the idea of what they were really looking at, they probably would pass out at that moment. So you are Cartesian. I drink, therefore I am. Coffee in your case. Reality has to have some foundation. Otherwise, theories wouldn't work. We couldn't predict the gravitational fields within the solar system and shoot a 
a satellite out there. It's funny, the satellite follows exactly the way we say it's going to. Well, what about the notion that in parallel, I don't know if you accept the parallel worlds theory, I mean, we, we live in it ourselves, literally, uh, that the, the laws of physics seem to vary from reality to reality, because all things that can be imagined or, or uh, postulated are in some sort of concrete existence somewhere in the multiverse. Not all physicists accept that, by the way, as you know. Sure. And, and in order to accept it and fully embrace it, one has to uh, take a philosophical standpoint. Because most theories, scientific theories, are based on anomalous observations, hard observations that don't fit in the current uh, model, and then they form theories to try to explain these observations. The multiverse is based on a philosophical premise. And so consequently, you would have to say that philosophy is equal to or greater than physical experience in order to give that theory more, you know, more credence, so to speak. Well, that's sure true in our case uh, with these experiences we've had. Let, let me just get down to something you said in some of the material you sent us, because uh, regardless of the causes or the the physical background here or, or whatever, the philosophical interpretation of the background, there do seem to be in your uh, world, your paradigm, entities, okay, who are living creatures and, and who can interact with us uh, in the ways perhaps you've described. So, uh, and, and if I can, let's see, am I quoting you here or not? Uh, Space-time can explain the mechanics, but okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, regardless of whatever entity, intelligence, or other process might initiate them. So do you believe in entities other than ourselves? Well, the very idea that uh, organized, coherent groups of information can produce intelligences like ourselves, uh, based on my model, uh, there is every reason to believe that information exists that's intelligent and coherent, but not necessarily physically manifested in our universe. All right. So uh, when we saw these four entities coming down the hallway, well, I interpreted them as parasites, or at the time, demons, uh, which we've since come to call parasites because it doesn't have the baggage, because uh, I've never found their theology to be the same as ours. What, what was I looking at there? What, 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 was, uh, what was I fighting with? What was throwing the kid across the, the room there? Well, again, what we're looking at are coherent, intelligent forms yeah, yeah. of information okay. that have been able to at least partially uh, materialize themselves physically, uh, in part through the bending of space. Have you ever encountered any? No, not myself personally. Okay, you you might find the experience uh, w would certainly deepen your point, you know, your your point of view, and and uh, I don't know. That, that's I sometimes feel the lack of a an education in physics can be a problem. But I so but I, you know, I have education in other areas, and I was uh, studied under some very prominent people in the um, in the in the two different churches who were exorcists and all this business. But um, anyway, that's... Um, so, so I, I mean, I, I'm just wondering what we're getting at here. What is the... The next step might be, what is the motive behind whatever uh, groups of intelligences we're dealing with here? Well, you have to understand, uh, and my, my job that I see it and my duty to the community is this. I want to stay on the forensics team. It's actually a very safe place to be. 
But in, in our field, we have a 1,000 criminologists who are worried about who done it and why for every .25 forensists. So I'm not going to go in that field and saying, I think this is a demon and I think this was a ghost and I think this was a poltergeist. That's not my field of expertise. What I want to do is pre- present those criminologists with the model that says, yes, if you think that these were demonic entities and did all these things, Here's my model of the universe. According to that model, yes, Mr. Criminologist, absolutely that could be true. Okay. I think I understand what you're saying, and I respect it. All right, But one of the problems that we often point out with Western thinking is that it divides everything. It pigeonholes things, and it, it just it separates things from one another with the dubious assumption that if we study the parts of something, we can learn about the whole. Uh, as many philosophers have pointed out, very often Eastern philosophers, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. My problem with, with that approach is that I think one does have to take a holistic approach. That's what we try and do, and I don't think it is a, a difficult, even at times, to do it if, if you have the big picture in your mind. Now, maybe the big picture is flawed, maybe it's not complete, but it is big. <laughs> so I don't know what you, how you would respond to that. I, just, I have a problem with, with dividing rather than assembling things uh, as a means toward knowledge. What say you? My interpretation of that would be this, is that what you're talking about, according to my picture, would be when you talk about this Western philosophy of picking apart uh, material and trying to divide it up and analyze it that way. It's based on a strictly materialistic view of the universe. Exactly. Now, what we're saying, of course, what you've, discovered from personal experience, and what I've discovered mostly from other people's experiences is that there is an aspect to reality that is in addition to the material end of it. And so in order to uh, correctly assess reality, we can't, I don't necessarily believe in the Eastern philosophy that we should abandon the material in terms of the extra material, but we need to include both. Okay, well, I can respect that. There are those who say, though, Tom, that, and some of him, some of them have been guests on this show, saying that what we're studying in the paranormal is outside of science. It's outside of the paradigm of science, and it certainly cannot be uh, described, let alone defined, by the materialistic science that gave us the scientific method. Uh, I think there's a certain amount of validity to that. What, what, maybe you disagree. I do disagree. It's part of the propaganda dogma of established physics that says, well, this is not scientific. Mm, And I'll give you an example. Okay, well, go ahead. Because, you know, let's take a look. When we see all the bizarre things that Qantas talk about, uh, the subatomic world, and they accept it, that this is normal and this is fine, same kinds of things happen in the paranormal, but they're not being pronounced by their own prophets. (laughs) Okay. And so they reject it, and, and it's intellectually dishonest, and I'll give you a good example. Um, science has no explanation how life emerged from inanimate matter. But if you take a look at the, at the physics and the principles, not the dogma and the propaganda, but the pure physics of it, no system can have any subset of it that would exceed or work in contradiction to the laws that govern the greater system. What I say is that if you take a deck of cards, you could come up with a million different rules 
and hands, but in the end, everything is dictated by the deck of cards. You're not suddenly going to get a suit of spikes coming out of it. So if that's the case, if life is a subset of the universe, that means that the universe itself must have life embedded in it. Mm-hmm. And if the universe can create intelligences like ourselves, that must mean the universe has to be intelligent also. Otherwise, yeah, okay. we, have, we have a quandary in physics where the universe is creating subsets of itself that exceed its own laws or work in contradiction to it. Now, scientists won't touch this with a 10-foot pole because they want to say, hey, beneath your skin is all your imagination. We don't have to deal with it. They don't have to confront the Einsteinian challenge. God does not roll dice. Well, don't look now, Tom. I think, in a way, you're espousing the uh, the Eastern thought uh, on much of this, as as did Sir Fred Hoyle, the the, the great astronomer, the, the late great uh, royal astronomer Royal for, from Britain, when he said that the uh, life is not the exception in the universe; it's the rule, and that it can exist in all sorts of different forms that we don't even think about. Um, yeah, the biggest difference between me and the Eastern philosophies is I'm not going to surrender my steak dinner. <laughs> okay, well. Uh, Ben being a vegetarian might have yeah. some pungent comments on that, but in any case, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, anybody that that draws a line with an opinion is going to, you know, uh, find people to disagree with it. I don't, I don't care what you put in your body. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Um, where does theology enter into this? Where is God in your thinking? Well, again, if I start from the forensics point of view and start building uh, from uh, uh, from the ground up, so to speak, uh, what religion and theology uh, attempts to do in large part is the same thing that science tries to do, and that it tries to explain uh, various observations and experiences that we have. The difference is religions, most religions, uh, cause a, or, or look to an extra physical source, something outside of space-time, to explain those things. And uh, real good religions have an order that makes some sort of a sense to our reason, which means that there must be something to them, because our reason is a subset of the physical laws that created the universe. So if our reason recognizes them as coherent and meaningful, there's got to be something to it. Okay, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Although, having studied... Uh in an Eastern Orthodox seminary, one of the three seminaries I studied in, there is a point of view of almost the opposite, that, that God is, is that, that all of the physical world and, and the universe is shot through with the presence of God uh, as, as one who is conterminous with all space and coexistent with all time. Um, so I, I don't know if, again, here, but that, that's an Eastern Christian approach. Right. That what you a, wouldn't hear in a Western, Western seminary. Right. What a Western Christian approach would say that is, is that, uh, and this is from, you know, basic Christian theology, is that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God. He is an extension of God. And in, through him, all things were made. And so everything that's in the universe reflects the, the order that is in the word of God, which is an aspect of God. Well, the trouble with basic theology is that it depends who, whose basic theology, unfortunately, is, is sort of degenerated into a babble, you know. Absolutely. Uh, you but know. what we're doing is finding areas of, you know, of agreement at this moment in time. Yes, of course. And so we have one uh, philosophy that, or, or religion that may talk about the presence of God 
ever present in the universe. And I took the Christian aspect of it and say, from a Christian perspective, this understanding of Christianity, in a sense, says the exact same thing. Yeah, I can see. I, I can see what you're do. saying. Yeah, yeah. In, in depending on how you look at. It. As a matter of fact, I, I've been. My last book, uh, Turning Home, was uh, not really. Uh, it was sort of a, an overview of my philosophy of what I've experienced over the past. Well, that in that probably at that point, thirty five years. And I have had uh, particularly Orthodox priests and people and people who are of theological education coming coming out of the woodwork. Telling me what a great book it was, and that that was, uh, and I, mean, I use some of my experience in, in Orthodox thought in there because I think it, it it sort of expresses things well. But I had no idea that I was um, really playing to that audience, so to speak. And I mean, I'm glad somebody liked the book. Uh, other people liked it, other people didn't. But uh, I was rather surprised at how. So, so maybe there is a certain commonality there. But let me ask you this, because we're running out of time here, Tom. I, I, I'm, I'm going to hate to end this conversation. I'm having a whale of a time here. Uh, having a great time talking to you here. But l- let me ask you this: What um, do, do you consider yourself as out to prove anything to mainstream science? Because so many people in this field are trying to do that, usually alone. Well, you know, I take it a very different approach. Uh, people normally, you know, are uh, when they're trying to get into the door, so to speak, they're trying to say, hey, you know, pay attention to me, and this is what I have that's valid. And, you know, science stays in their own house and says, look, we're, we, we're just not going to go out and play in your particular boxing ring. What I do is a little bit different. I throw down the gauntlet. I say, you know what, I can go into your boxing ring and give you a bloody nose on your own turf with your own laws and rules, and I can make physical predictions on my theory that you could go out and test about the expansion of the early universe, the percentage of gravity that was in the early universe opposed to what it is now, and I challenge them. I say, you come to me. I'm not going to you. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience in the 1970s. By the late 70s, I was really confused about what I was dealing with. The old uh, spiritualist explanations for what I was seeing just weren't good enough. And I got hit in the nose with a case in which there was a student at the University of Connecticut who at the same time was haunting a house in Maine and ran into the people. It, it, was, it was absolutely astounding. I said, this is not spirits of the dead and all this spiritualist nonsense. So, And, and at the time I was working, I, I consider... Louisa Ryan to be one of my mentors uh, at the time, and she was, of course, one of the, the certainly the, the grandmother of modern parapsychology. And uh, she couldn't explain it, and she and and her husband Joseph, Doctor Joseph Ryan, were trying to explain things to modern science, so called, for decades. And their successors, and uh, for example, the American Society for Psychical Research, who are, often include eminent psychologists and physicists and people like this, just. Even they couldn't break into this, as you say, the, the house of science. You know, they just keep the doors locked, and the um, the, the uh, welcome mat is removed from the front door. <laughs> yeah, well, even here, to their yeah, own. I don't want to sound too arrogant because it might have sounded arrogant, but we no. know the frustrations that can, you know, arise over years of trying to get people's attention. Absolutely. But I'm going to make a prediction right now, and this is a prediction based on my theory. After you get done repeatedly, Mister Scientific Community bilking organizations and governments for billions of dollars to build these atom smashers, these these colliders, 
and you still cannot find the Higgs boson, you can't find the graviton, mm -hmm. and you can't find the dark matter that are all required for your materialistic view of the universe. When they stop giving you money, look me up, I'll be here. <laughs> Very good. Well, on that note, we're going to call it, uh, call it a day here on this fascinating conversation. Tom, it's been absolutely wonderful. Why don't you uh, tell people about your book and your website and where they can find out more about you? Uh, you can find everything, uh, related articles, the blog, uh, listings of where I'm going to appear next, and uh, to buy the book, of course, uh, is at www.cosmicveil, spelled V-E-I-L, cosmicveil.com. It's all there. Excellent. Very good. It's a thick book. I, I, do, I was going to have it in front of me, but somebody hooked it. So uh, <laughs> anyway... Tell uh, ben, them to buy their own. Yeah, tell them to go buy their own. Yeah, exactly. Ben, do you have any uh, further comments? Or It's been wonderful having you on the show, and it's good to have some different perspectives every now and then. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Tom. We'll be in touch off the air. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Tom Fusco, ladies and gentlemen. Cosmic Veil, V-E-I-L, CosmicVeil.com. Okay. So... We, th there is, I wanted to give you a bit of a teaser here. How much time do we have? Uh, we have about seven minutes. Okay. Give a bit of a teaser here. Uh, we are putting together a show. I don't know if you know this yet, Ben. What? But, uh. I probably don't know it. Okay. Well, this is going to be about people, and I, I wish, I'd like to get Tom's uh, thoughts on some of these things, too. Cases of people sort of stumbling into other universes. This has happened. It's happened uh, many times. It's well recorded over many centuries that people somehow will be in one place or time, and then all of a sudden they're in another place or time. So let, let me just begin to read this. We're going to try to get this lady on the show. Uh, this is uh, from a woman, and unfortunately she's in uh, Europe and does not speak English, so we're going to have to work on that. Uh, four months ago, this is a translation of her, of her personal... Uh, uh, account of this. Four months ago, I woke up in a normal morning. I was in my rental house where uh, li I lived for seven years. Everything was the same except the set of sheets on my bed was different. Uh, did not give, uh, and she didn't think that was important at the moment. Uh, she said that her, uh, she, she woke up and she, she was, uh, she was apparently in bed with, with her ex-husband who uh, she had been divorced from for for a long time, and yet in, in this particular world they were they had never been divorced. Uh, said that her office uh, her office was in a different location in the building that, that she, than she remembered. Uh, and um, I just I'm trying to read this is a terrible translation. Uh, I got to my office wireless area and I looked uh, and was still working there, but was in another department reporting to a director who I did not even know. I went to the office to mark the directory. Uh, I said I was sick and I left. Everything in my portfolio was the same. My cards, my ID, all the same, but I do not remember having changed departments at any time. Uh, I went to medical insurance and they tested me for drugs and alcohol. Everything was clean. I went to work the next day and, and asking, uh, they told me, uh, telling that I did not feel well and that I had been just a bit out of step. Uh, my apartment is the same. I have watched all the papers and I keep in the house and everything is the same. Soon I realized that everything was, that something was wrong and I thought it was some kind of amnesia. Uh, now of course this could be explained, uh, by uh, obviously some sort of psychological difficulty, but there, there are 
mitigating factors in many of these cases. Uh, six months ago, uh, I'm not with my partner of seven years. We left and started a relationship with a guy in my neighborhood. I know him well. I've been four months with him and know his name, address, where he worked as a child, uh, you, you have to, and where he was studying. Uh, well, now there is this other guy who, she, who suddenly turned up, the, and, and uh, everything was, was, was messed up. The world was just different. Not completely different, but little things that were just sort of driving her uh, kind of bonkers here. And so we're going to try to pin this down. She has been tested by a number of psychologists. No difficulties of that kind have been found. And it seems to be a, a, a matter of a time slip. Now, you might remember the case that I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it occurred in 1976 before I knew what I thought I know, think I know now about the multiverse. And uh, this particular, I had to literally talk this, what people thought was a ghost, into his next life, shall I say. Uh, he was um, remembered being in a plane crash, but I was in this attic in Yonkers, New York, sort of dealing with him, and he, and he, and he, was, he said he was in a stone church in Virginia. Everything was different than he realized, but at the same time, his memory was changing as he talked to me, so he said. And at the end of the conversation, which took the better part of three days, he was um, uh, completely at home in his new world. Uh, people were coming to the door of the church, uh, presumably out of the choir to practice, or his family looking for whatever, and everything was was just fine. It was, uh, and that's happened on a couple of occasions that I seem to have caught people uh, when people have reported ghosts in their house or whatever. And you go in and you investigate it from the, I think, a deeper point of view than most people take. You find these these really strange circumstances. So um, perhaps this woman had uh, died, quote unquote, in a parallel life. And you, what, what does nature do? You take the path of least resistance. Path of least resistance was to a world very similar to what she had, but somehow her memory stuck with her. And this uh, seems to have been, been the case. There's also the case uh, we want to get into of the man in the Tokyo airport who appeared in the airport with a passport. He appeared at Japanese customs with a passport from a country that had never existed. He had, he had coins from the, the currency from this country. He, had, he was wearing a, a fabric. Uh, his clothes were made of a fabric that was not known. And uh, et cetera, et cetera, and he eventually uh, the, the police uh, he ran out of the airport. The police set up a, a huge uh, manhunt for him. Never found him, and uh, these things happen with startling frequency. We had the case of the the people who rode into the show who said that they had been traveling. Remember, there was an Arizona Ben or New Mexico. I think it was New Mexico. Yeah, and and they they stumbled into a town that they were avid. Uh, yeah, they were looking for ghost towns. Ghost towns. Yeah, they were avid oh, uh, fans of ghost towns. And they found not only a ghost town, they found a very, a very uh, prosperous and functioning town where everybody spoke Dutch. All the sudden, well, it would turned out to be Dutch. Uh, they, they got a lot of strange looks because they were the only ones driving a car that was different from anyone else's. And this was really, really odd. And they never found out any more about it. But parallel world experiences? Well, probably. Okay, that about does it for today then. I want to thank our producer, uh, the lovely Denise Richards, who is here this evening with us. And we'll see you next uh, next Monday, January 16th, right here on WON 1240 AM and com. when Ben and I will welcome author and researcher Dr. Joseph Mara, who has been researching the multiverse and what it means for us. Ah, so now after a very interesting perspective, we're back to our the one that we usually use on our show. So on our regular CBS edition on Sunday, January 15th, in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, we'll welcome 
the famed British author, adventurer, and researcher Richard Freeman for Adventures in Cryptozoology. We leave you this evening with a quote that we often use on the show. It's from the great physicist of Ger- from Germany, Max Planck. Quote, A scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. Unquote. Thanks for sailing with us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.